This episode of Seize the Yay is brought to you by Mitsubishi. We were raised to be, I think, hardworking, and we also believed that you'd never look at an opportunity and turn it away. A lot of people didn't want to play our music. It wasn't what was happening in Australian music at the time, and but we just kept going and we just felt like, you know, there was something good in it. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Well, there's a little something different for you all this week, lovely neighborhood. What a treat to have the melodious voice of Julia Stone coming to your ears. Unless you've literally been living under a rock, you will definitely have heard some of her work, even if you didn't realise it, including, at the very least, the ubiquitous and ARIA award-winning single, Big Jet Plane, released with her brother Angus in the same year that they won five ARIA awards from nine nominations for their incredible work. But what I'm thrilled to be chatting with Julia about today is her brand new album, 60 Summers. And you've just heard a little snippet of one of the featuring songs and one of my favourites, Break, It's So Full of Yay, along with a couple of other tracks that have been pre-released before it launches officially this week. This is her third solo album, but the first one, as you'll hear, that wasn't launched in between other Angus and Julia releases. And with the most striking departure into new sounds, as again, you just heard, new partnerships and and even supporting visuals, including a wonderful little music video featuring Susan Sarandon and Danny Glover. You know I love getting into conversations about identity, different chapters, outgrowing your past definitions of success, and finding new metrics for your happiness. So what a perfect time to sit down with this wonderful artist just before this new album comes into the world. As always, it was so enlightening to hear more about the human being behind the household name. I love that part of this show so much. Hopefully you all learn as much as I did about Julia that you might not have known before. Before we jump in, you've probably noticed that we didn't have a Yays of Our Lives episode this week, even after our fabulous co-hosted chat last week. I'm so glad you guys love the banter. I'll make sure there is much more of that to come. I've admittedly fallen into some very optimistic but ultimately unrealistic scheduling, so it's been a bit of an overflowing few weeks. We've been out on the road recording some amazing Yayborhood chats but need a bit more time to bring the editing together. So just taking a little breather from the extra segment for this week and next to make sure I do just justice to those stories, but also to give us time to line up some other co-hosts since you loved the banter so much. I'm actually heading out to the Red Centre this week for an immersive women's cultural experience along the Larapinta Trail in the Northern Territory and won't have any signal for quite a few days in a row for the first time in many years. So there'll be a whole Yays of Our Lives episode just on that, I'm sure, to fill you in on all the revelations and aha moments I expect that that will stimulate after we return next week. So things are still moving in the background for Yays of Our Lives, just slower than I might have liked, my own fault. Your regular interview scheduling, however, will continue and Yays of Our Lives will be back as soon as possible. In the meantime, enjoy. Julia Stone, welcome to the show. Hello. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. (laughs) Me too. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. What an absolute privilege. I've been listening to your music for so long. So to meet you in person, it's just so delightful. 
Thank you. That's awesome. (laughs) So before we kick off, I love to start by asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them to break through the often glossy surface-level identity that our kind of digital world enables us all to have, but particularly for those of us like yourself who have many wonderful achievements, who we've all often been introduced to through ARIA awards or chart-topping albums and singles, what's something really just normal about you? If there's anything. Um, Oh, there's nothing normal about me. I guess probably my absolute adoration for my dog. (gasps) Yes. I I found that the love that I feel with her and going to the beach and it's so simple. It's Mm. just a really simple pleasure. But the purity of animals is something that no matter how big a deal you might think you are in a moment, (laughs) you know, your dog is just like, yeah, you're just the person that I love and want to be next to. And oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, so I guess that's that's it. Oh, we're the same. We have a golden retriever called Paul and he's the centre of our universe. Mm. Like sometimes it's atrocious. I'm like, who have we become? This yeah, is horrible but amazing. <laughs> my grandparents are cattle farmers on one side and so I grew up around working dogs mm. and dogs were just a different – it was a different – thing you know they were there to help out and um they were never inside the house and they were loved but I think if my grandparents saw how Red is treated (laughs) inside the bed (laughs) on the bed anywhere she wants to go they would be they would be appalled (laughs) they're just whenever you're having an anxious moment or just getting overwhelmed by anything their unconditional love for you and just how happy they are to see you even if you've only been out for like 10 minutes Mm. it's just so beautiful Mm. you can't be angry while your dog is happy Mm, it's true so speaking of your grandparents and your background I think one of my favorite parts of this show is going back to the very beginning and tracing back how we form these identities. And Mm -hmm. as we started talking about before we were recording, just looking at the different decision-making processes that you go through in your life that lead you to where you are today. Mm -hmm. And so much of the incredible stuff that we hear that we've all achieved, you know, it gets more airtime, I think, than a lot of the earlier days, but they're the formative ones. And Mm -hmm. people forget that you had to go through so many shitty chapters and so many tough, you know, chapters where you don't don't have direction before the find you mm. find the ones where you do mm. so tell us about young julia what you were like as a child i know music was part of your life from very early but did you always you know perceive it as a career option or was it just something that you enjoyed i think music was always a part of our lives and it wasn't until i left high school and went backpacking that i started thinking about songwriting in the way that i do now So I guess that was around 19. Prior to that, music had been something fun to do and something that in a way, I wouldn't say our parents forced us to do it, but it was, I mean, they did force us. (laughs) They're folk musicians, (laughs) aren't they? Well, ish. You know, (laughs) mum and dad, when they met, mum sings and dad plays guitar and piano. And so when they were backpacking, when they had first met and they were in their 20s, they would make money by singing songs together. And so that was part of their story. And then of course has become a part of our story, but probably wasn't the, the fundamental part of them that drove us towards music. Because when we were old enough to remember, mum wasn't really singing anymore and Mm. dad had a band of his own that was more the music in the house. And we all joined the school band 
you know, dad was the band conductor. And <laughs> I saw that you were all together in the family. Were you trumpet? I was trumpet. My Angus sister's was... saxo- saxophone and Angus was trombone. Also, everyone, there is a third stone, a third stone sibling, Catherine, who played the saxophone. I thought that was really interesting. Yes, Catherine. <laughs> she's a year and a half older than I am. And in a way, Catherine was probably the most naturally interested in music. Wow. Yeah. It's funny looking back because she ended up taking up classical guitar when she was in her teenage years. And for me, it was just, it was really a social thing. I loved being in the school band because I got to hang out with older kids. Mm. And particularly in high school, felt like older kids were more fun than kids in my own year. (laughs) Wise beyond your years. (laughs) Kind of not that. I guess I just, at first when I got to high school, I didn't have any friends. And so the band was much more accepting. I was a pretty odd kid in the sense that I had much more confidence than other kids like. And That was because of being raised by stagey kind of parents that they put <laughs> us in. Well, you know, they, we were all doing acting when we were five, six. Wow. I was in a country practice when I was six <gasps> years old. Oh, my God. I used to love that show. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. A country practice. <laughs> I guess that's something that nobody really knows about me. What I, an institution. I was a child actor until I was nine and then I retired. Oh, my God. Oh, early retirement. I mean, you yeah. peak and then what can you do? I peaked. I peaked. I peaked young. <laughs> really early. <laughs> I peaked on in a, in an Australian film called Sirens. It was – I don't know if you remember, but I there don't. was – Elle McPherson, Kate Fisher and Portia de Rossi were the models who were being painted by Norman Lindsay, played by Sam Neill, who was a famous Australian painter that he was famous because he was painting naked women at a time that the church was really dominant in the art world. Hugh Grant plays the priest from the UK who flies out to talk him out of painting these naked women. What a car! I know, it was an all-star. <laughs> this is why I said I peaked early. <laughs> so Julia Stone's claim to fame. <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> It was a big deal at primary school. I, um, I had two months off school to shoot in the Blue Mountains at the original Norman Lindsay house. Wow. And I got everybody Elle McPherson's autograph, you know, so I came back to school, you know, just, you know, cheering, people cheering for me. Oh, that's so they weren't. Cute. They absolutely weren't. <laughs> it's weird how jealousy at a very young age um, seeps into, particularly in girls' kind of absolutely. environments. So And difference. I think we spend so much of our youth suppressing what makes us different because mm. we want to be same and we want to have grounds that are, you know, common with other people to kind of identify with each other. But I feel like as you get older, you start stripping that back and just owning the bits of you that are weird and unique and that ends up being what you're celebrated for rather than what makes you an outsider. Yeah, I I think being a kid, you don't understand complex emotions like that. You Mm. actually, that behavior or the way that other people treat you then refines you to become more, you know, someone who conforms a little bit more. And I realized from all of that time of being out of school, doing fun acting things, it was better not to tell people about what I was doing. It was better to hide that I was doing fun stuff out of school and that continued through high school where I started writing songs when I was in year seven at high school, but I didn't have a guitar or a piano to write songs on. So I would write a cappella melody lines and lyrics. Wow. 
and I felt confident. I, I just didn't never understood that people could see that as a bad thing to share the songs. And so I would go to the school teachers and I'd say, I want to sing a song that I've written for the school assembly. And I would stand up with no music and sing the song in the microphone to a thousand kids. You That's know, the song amazing. I wrote about peace or <laughs> whatever it was, very Your cute. Your dog. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, exactly, my dog. And that was when I started realising as well, like bullying and stuff where people making fun of me. And, oh, my god! And, again, all of that stuff led to me turning away from music when I was in high school. I stopped wanting to sing and I, I liked singing a lot and at home it was really normalised to do that. Um, but high school, you know, sort of beats it out of you and then – it wasn't until I left that I, I was like, actually, I, I love doing this. Oh, my gosh. And that is, I mean, another big section that we can probably weave into this one is your natia. And it is all the big challenges to your joy that you face along the way. Like for many people, self-doubt, but sometimes it's the opposite. If you do show or demonstrate any kind of confidence, it's being hit by tall poppy syndrome or jealousy or misunderstanding or bullying. And mm. for many people, what makes me shudder is that they could maybe not come back to finding the thing that they're mm. joyful about and they do suppress it for so long that it is beaten out of them mm. completely. So it's so wonderful that the music was never beaten out of you because now we all get to enjoy it <laughs> in such a wonderful way. I, I think, I mean, from my understanding, people don't mean to do it. Mm. I think it's a way of buffering your own feelings of insecurity about something you desire. And I think self-expression is something that is innately human. Yes. We all need to express and when you're somebody who's afraid of doing that it's it it makes you feel uncomfortable when somebody else does it and for some people it inspires them to do it themselves and for other people they say please stop it because you know in whatever way they say that yeah. but please stop doing that because it's yeah. making me feel yeah uncomfortable about that it's that it's missing in my life and I taught trumpet throughout high school that was the I saw that my part-time job and <laughs> I was always amazed at how young children could be because we were raised by our parents to believe that everybody can sing. Everybody has a singing voice. My dad in particular, he didn't have a particularly lovely voice, <laughs> but he would always sing and he sang in choirs, he sang in his band, and he would always encourage anyone who came around to our house to sing with us and sing oh, by the piano. So beautiful. But young kids who would come to learn trumpet from me. I often at the time would teach with my voice. I found it easier to sing the parts on the music than to play them. And I also found that if you could sing the part, it was easier to play the part on the trumpet when you were learning. Right. So I'd try to get the kid to sing the part with me. And a lot of kids from very young, eight years old, would say, I can't sing. And I would say, absolutely, you can sing. Everybody can sing. And they'd say, no, um, my teacher says that I have a bad voice or my mum says, oh, you know, and it's just a moment that a parent turns around and says, can you please shut up? I'm trying to do the cooking. It sounds yeah. terrible. It's one moment and that for someone's voice is a lifetime. They never forget that they've been told they're tone deaf or they're singing out of tune and people who have beautiful voices still believe that they 
can't follow a pitch or oh my gosh it's fascinating yeah it's incredibly powerful wow so during that time when you did sort of steer a little bit away from music something that I find really fascinating is when we mentioned this just before when you stop making decisions based on what you love and what you're drawn to and what you're good at and the Venn diagram of all those things and start kind of being more influenced by the noise of expectation and societal norms and and also just on what you're going to do as a job and having a livelihood and I think for a lot of creative and artists like musicians music starts as a passion and for some people if they turn it into their job it kills the passion Mm -hmm. for others they don't actually believe that it could be a job so they don't pursue it for you when you know what did you first think you were going to do as a living was it music or did you have other jobs in between before you came back to it? Like how did you sort of fall into it as a career, particularly if you veered away from it for a little while? Um, the songwriting part of me, I guess I always wrote poetry. I always wrote a journal and, you know, it was all very innocent stuff, you know, about problems at school or mum and dad, you know, they don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> teenage angst. <laughs> yeah, teenage angst. <laughs> I remember finding one of my journal entries and it was just, I'm so fucking tired, they'll never understand. And it was like, <laughs> they, don't, <laughs> they don't get it. And it's like, yeah, I think they do. They <laughs> both are working six jobs. It's like, um, yeah, I'm very grateful to my parents now. I, I've reread stuff and I also behaved inc- incredibly poorly at times and I – I, I thank them as regularly as I can for, <laughs> for forgiving you, <laughs> just for forgiving me and for being amazing. Parents are amazing, even they when are. they're not great parents and they're going through stuff. They're amazing. Mm. It's tough. Yeah, I wish I knew that when I was a teenager. But um, veering away from music, I think started with boyfriends, and right. that was my parents are amazing, but they had a very unhappy marriage, mm. and they would be fine with me saying that because I've mentioned it before and. They split up when I was 15, but for, for up until that time, the house had been a pretty difficult place to be in. And I think all of us kids were looking for a way out mm-hmm. of being there. And so when I met my first boyfriend, who was an extraordinary man, I saw a way out and I thought, that's it. It's marriage and children and, you know, everything <laughs> about... pathway. <laughs> yeah, that was the right one option. And um, he had other ideas. He He's a brilliant musician and he was in a band and they were on the road to, to great things and I was following him around to all the shows and I was just very, I guess, utopian about what I wanted out of the relationship. I wanted it to save me. I wanted it to fix everything and... He was a bit older than me and aware that that was unrealistic and also aware, I think, that I needed to live a life. And I was so committed and so obsessed, I put everything else aside just Mm. to follow him around. And when he broke up with me, that was part of the desire to start writing songs again. I felt like, oh, I don't have anything really. Like I don't have a home to go to with my parents that feels safe I don't have him who was everything in my Mm. life or every hope I had. I think everybody's first heartbreak feels like the end of the world. (laughs) And your identity, you don't know that you're meant to hold a little piece of yourself back either, so you don't, and then you become completely subsumed in this other person. Yeah, Yeah, you give everything and that isn't, I now realise that's not (laughs) a healthy relationship. But as a 15-year-old, it's everything and, but 
without that, I wouldn't have, I think, found my way back to music. I really needed to get it out in some way and to, and I started to listen to music in a different way. I had this experience now, this life experience that made sense of my parents' unhappiness as well, which I hadn't had any way to integrate or contextualize from my own, you know, innocence. And yeah. all of a sudden that was, you know, the the Wizard of Oz, the, the curtain had been pulled back and I saw what was behind. Humans are flawed. Yeah. I'm flawed. And we hurt each other when we don't mean to. Yeah. And that's something that really pulled me back into music is really powerful and connective. And I'm not alone in this experience. So many people have been hurt through losing someone through death or losing someone through them leaving or them leaving. You know, it's, yeah. um, I guess, in a more physical sense how I found my way back to music was that I I decided I had no idea what I wanted to do when I finished school I studied really hard and I did well at school but I felt confused about university I applied for a course in visual media oh wow. no idea why <laughs> I just yep. it was a popular course at the time and <laughs> Sounds like a smart thing to do. (laughs) I just thought everybody else wants to do it, so maybe I should. Uh, Isn't that funny? That's probably exactly what you thought. Yeah, (laughs) it was. I just thought everybody says I should go to uni. I don't know what to do and that's one of the most popular courses at this moment in time, so try and get into that. I did a year and I was really uninspired. I just remember feeling really out of place and... I wasn't living on campus. I think that made a difference. I was driving in and driving out in my old Volvo and (laughs) I, um, I just felt like, I don't know, just very flat. And I was going out with um, a lovely guy whose um, family were Chilean and we started talking about going to South America to see his, meet his family, for me to meet his family. And this was your gap year. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So actually relationships have led you to lots of different places that have caused pivotal moments in your life. Yeah. I feel like for me, relationships have been a huge part of the propulsion through moments in time. Each relationship I've been in has been deep and important. And I'm not saying that that's not the same for everybody. Some people though, I feel like they find their person and it really makes sense. And there's a comfortable side to their life in relationship and other things in their life will propel them to change yeah but for me relationships have been really I think because of our upbringing it's been fertile ground to find growth and learn I love that there's a quote that I really like that people come into your life for a reason a season or a lifetime oh yeah that's nice and we kind of I think we want everything to be forever and we feel guilt or shame or loss if we do evolve in and out of relationships, but you're a different person at every different chapter of your life. So you're Mm. going to need different relationships for Mm. different things, different propulsions, different pivots. And I love that you do reflect back and think of them as quite pivotal for you. Mm. And I think some people can do that together. You Mm, know, they pivot at the same moment and and I've seen friends of mine who have been together since they're in high school and they're still <laughs> pivoting together and it's amazing yeah. and inspiring. And, you know, I sometimes think, what would that be like? You know, that would be <laughs> incredible. I mean, I still have so much love for my high school boyfriend. I just think oh. he was such a, what a great person to have welcomed me into the world of relationship. He was so kind and so funny and set the tone for what 
a friendship inside of a relationship looks like. And there was pain in it, of course, but yeah, each person along the way has shown me something about myself that I've needed to see. Wow. And so then you entered this amazing chapter that, I mean, did you have any idea of how you would become a household name? Like now we all know who you are. <laughs> Did it start from just writing songs and then you and Angus deciding to write songs together and then they just happened to go really well or did you set out with a plan for them to become as widespread as they did? Like how did it all unravel? Um, I suppose that the first step of Angus and I connecting it all, we had been quite disconnected through the years of our um, of being teenagers because of what I described. Our parents lived separately. We had a lot of freedom that we hadn't been allowed when they were together. So we we lived quite independently. I had moved in with my boyfriend. It was kind of, we were a bit ships in the night and mm. I knew that he was interested in music because we went to the same high school. So he would sometimes be performing on the school assembly. <laughs> and I knew he was really good. Like I I remember seeing him perform once and it was rowdy, like the kids were all talking and, you know, it was, you know, school's just like teachers getting kids under control to pay attention to a performance. And he walked out on stage and as soon as he started singing, the whole room went dead quiet. And it was a moment. I remember thinking there's something special about what he does. And this was when I wasn't particularly interested in music. I, I just, I just knew Angus was onto something, you know, or something about him was special. And well, when I was in South America, mum flew over and met my partner at the time and me with Angus. And we went, um, we took our backpacks and we went into the Bolivian Amazon. And it was a great experience. It was so wonderful. It was an organization that was run by the tribal community in the Amazon. It was to try and keep the youth staying in the Amazon rather than trying to go to the cities for work. Oh, that's amazing. So a lot of them would speak five languages, the traditional language, Spanish, German, English. It was incredible. And they're in the deep part of the Amazon forest and beautiful eco-lodge. And they would take us on walks around the forest to tell us about the different animals. I remember seeing a tarantula the size of a plate. (gasps) Oh, my God. It's incredible. <laughs> and everywhere, everywhere were the um, – I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but they it's like the alligators or the crocodiles of the Amazon. They're called caimanas, I think. <gasps> and oh they're just – we'd go out in canoes at night with the torches and you could see them all around the boat. And you're oh. in a canoe that's kind of just on the surface. It was really wild and wonderful and we're all on anti-malaria tablets and having wild, vivid dreams. And, <laughs> and Angus, we had a guitar with us and he one morning I came out and he was playing a song and I asked him, you know, whose song it was. It was so beautiful. And he said, oh, I wrote that. And that was a moment where I, I realised he was also writing songs about these incredible feelings he was having and... I asked him if he could show me a couple of chords on the guitar and he taught me to play Ben Harper, Walk Away. And he then left, went back to finish school. He was in year 10 at the time. And I then travelled onwards with the guitar and that was when I started really writing song songs. 
I had them fully formed and I was playing them for people in hostels and, and my partner and I had split and so I went down to Argentina and travelled all the way up through Brazil and it was me and my guitar and my backpack and <laughs> I just asked people to teach me songs everywhere I went so I learnt from random travellers along the road and that was a year doing that and then I got back to Australia with maybe eight songs under my belt and I had no money and Angus was living in dad's house and dad had just met his soon-to-be wife and so we both lived there you know rent-free at dad's place (laughs) writing songs. Back to the nest. (laughs) Yeah and it was then that you know I started singing harmonies on his songs and he started singing harmonies on my songs. He had a label that was interested in him and he asked if I would come in and sing some stuff with him for one of these label sessions and and then the label sort of said well what what is she doing what, what's that what's yeah. that happening there what's going on and they offered us a weird deal it was sort of together but apart and it was a very bad deal <laughs> is but that we that were, EMI one where you went to London no that was later we this was very early even pre-doing open mic nights <gasps> wow then we started doing open mic nights our auntie who worked at EMI and had moved to London, got an email from my mum saying, can you help the kids because they don't know what they're doing and (laughs) they're getting offered deals but we don't know if they're good or not. And she came back and took us into EMI and a bunch of other places around Sydney and we played, just me and Angus were walking with our guitars and we didn't even still at this point see us as a group. We were just playing one of his songs and one of my songs and... And then, um, yeah, we got offered a a record deal. Um, We said, well, what do we call ourselves? And (laughs) You're like, our names. (laughs) Yeah, well, we went through all sorts of names, you know, band names. And and then we just, we were like, this is silly. Let's just say we're Angus and Julia. And that was the beginning. Hey, Yeighborhood, just a quick word about our partner in Yay before we continue with today's episode. As you've probably seen, I've been zipping around town in a fabulous Yaymobile from Mitsubishi, the amazing new Eclipse Cross, and I'm so grateful to the team for making our Yays of Our Lives segment possible. You all know I love working with partners who use their influence in business for good, and not only are Mitsubishi enabling us to shine a light on unsung heroes in the community, they've also just extended their own partnership with Disaster Relief Australia. As part of this, they'll be providing 25 SUV and all-terrain vehicles across Adelaide, Brisbane, Canberra, Melbourne, Sydney and Townsville, helping to fulfil Disaster Relief Australia's mission to provide rapid disaster response in the wake of natural disasters. Throughout the devastating 2019 and 2020 bushfire season, Mitsubishi helped Disaster Relief Australia deploy nearly 600 volunteers across the country to support with clearing bushfire land. And this support accounted to a community value of over $2.2 million, which will only continue to grow this year. What a privilege it is to have a partner in Yay with such a big heart. And keep an eye out for the Yaymobile as we'll be heading out with Disaster Relief Australia to see more of what they do in the coming months. Also, for anyone out in the neighbourhood who would like to get involved, Disaster Relief Australia are currently looking for volunteers nationally. So people can sign up by visiting disasterreliefoz.org slash volunteer. Now back to the show. 
Oh my gosh, that is so fascinating. And this is the bit that I don't think you get to hear as much because, you know, we all know of you as Angus and Julia Stone already formed. People forget that you actually had to decide when that was going to happen and then choose a name and then figure out who was writing what. (laughs) And it's, oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know any of that. It's so cool how you came together. Mm. And I always think there will be so many people out in the world who saw you at open mic nights or who saw you playing around Mm. South America who will Mm. now see you and go I remember when I saw her Mm. singing on the street I think uh, my husband had that he saw the kooks busking wow years before they became famous and I think you do you forget once people really hit you know platinum albums and all these huge accolades that everyone had to start as you know from the beginning Mm. and from not knowing that it was going to go that well so what did you think what was you know once you knew that you know, you could get a record deal and people loved your sound. When you, like, for example, when you re-recorded, I think Big Jet Plane was Angus's song that then you guys rewrote together. When you release a song out into the world, what do you actually think is going to happen? Like, do you monitor people's response? Do you know it's going to go well? Do you know that it's going to become a song that now the whole world recognises? Is definitely, that weird? Definitely not. <laughs> I Big Jet Plane and what happened with that record down the way, that was six years into us touring. So we had, by that point, put out maybe six EPs. We'd made a record or two records. No, we'd made a record before that. And, you know, we had been living in London. We were playing, we had gone from playing in front of eight people to 20 people to 50 people to 70 people to 150 people. I mean, we were just years and years on the road. Mm -hmm. And we really liked touring, but we you know, we also, it was a lot of work. And, you know, we were touring in our 800 pound Tarago (laughs) with, you know, the whole band living in a three bedroom apartment, you know, which was six people living in a three bedroom space. And it was a lot, I mean, looking back, you think that was a lot of fun, but I, it was tough and it was um, (laughs) a long way from home. And, you know, Angus is a surfer, you know, not being near the beach and water, we, we were living a different life and it was it was good for our writing. I think um, it was it was great for us to be in that environment and London was a lot of fun and but by the time down the way happened, we didn't have any expectations. We'd we'd already signed deals and you know, our deals weren't major deals. They were just startup deals, you know, here's a bit of money to keep you going whilst you play your gigs and write <laughs> to songs. To eat your food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't it wasn't like we were in um Forbes, you know, magazine for our record contracts. But yeah, we had some really nice people that believed in us and we we kept having just little incremental changes, you know, and like I said, just watching the shows grow and people coming back with more friends and And we both believed that every show was an opportunity and we'd meet people at shows who worked at a radio station and then they'd say, oh, I'd love you to come in and do an interview. And we took every, we were raised to be, I think, hardworking. And we also, um, similar to what we were talking about before we started recording, we also believed that you'd never look at an opportunity and turn it away. So we were yes people. We were just, if you told us there was a gig tomorrow night in the south of England and we just played in Scotland, we'd just drive through the night and we'd (laughs) all sleep in the car. We'd get there and we'd play. And we were so excited that we got to play gigs. And so we felt really privileged. I mean, it was our 
both of our parents' dreams to be performers and here we were living it. And we weren't famous, but we were happy. And I mean, I say that there were so many <laughs> challenges, but we were really, you know, we felt lucky. And so when when Big Jet Plane had the success that it had, it was really, really fun to do bigger shows and but for both Angus and I we were at that point we were ready for a break so it was funny it was like at the time that things really started to take off we were exhausted and we were kind of ready to also be our own people apart from each other we've been living together as brother and sister you know in share houses for it was going on yeah six years by down the way and living on tour buses or splitter vans and (laughs) um and doing every interview together doing every photo shoot together, doing every radio together. And that's tough. And I think we both have really different personalities and um, we have common values and common beliefs, but we we relate differently to to people and having to sit in an interview and try and find a tone that suits both of us (laughs) and talk about the things that are relevant to both of us was, it was tricky. And, and sometimes we would clash and, and we also, we were raised in a clashy environment. So that was also getting out of those habits and behaviors that we had, that were normalized. We had to do a lot of work. And I think Angus and I both would say in different ways that that's the thing we're most proud of now is that we we figured out ways to get through it. And oh my gosh, it's extraordinary. I love so many of the things that you just said, particularly how you mentioned it was really incremental because I think any kind of success or fulfillment is always incremental. It's Mm. just that you often don't hear about all of the increments, particularly Mm. the less glamorous, harder, even the fact that, you know, of course siblings in business together, but particularly in art form together, of course there's going to be harder bits that don't make, you know, most interviews, but behind the scenes there's so much. And I think I, I am so excited to now see that, you're here as Julia Stone. It's not Angus and Julia Stone everything anymore. You've now had three, this is your third solo album mm. about to come out now. And mm. again, it reiterates that idea that some of the increments are going to be chapters that are, you know, with partners and some might not be. And mm. the last few for you have been as a solo artist, which has seen your sound come out as a beautiful individual sound that even from album to album has changed so dramatically. And I'm, mm. I'm so lucky to have had a little sneak peek of 60 Summers, which is such an, even compared to your own sound, quite unique and different. So Mm. tell us about coming into your own now as an artist and maybe weave in a little bit of what I imagine is quite a jarring experience of building a new identity. And if we ever have self-doubt, I can imagine it is when you first go out on your own Mm. and put your sounds out there when you're not you don't have two of you to kind of say, oh, it was both of us. So Mm. if you don't like it, it was Mm. both of us. If you like it, it was just me. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's really – I've always admired solo artists and for that particular reason because I I felt for both – I mean, I won't speak for Angus, but for myself, that experience of it's ours really did soften the the fear that you have of presenting something. And this record in particular, I have made three solo records, but this one was different because – my first two solo records, The Memory Machine and By the Horns, felt like side projects to Angus and Julia. Angus and Julia oh. were was always dominating our lives. It was, it, it, in a good way, it was just that thing that it was, um, it was growing and it felt like that was where we should invest our time. And, and Angus and I love writing songs together and working in the studio, so 
that part of it and that part of making the actual music, we just loved doing it and we we were enjoying that. After Down the Way, actually, we, we had sort of decided, okay, now it's time for solo music and and then we were thrust back together by the very, you know, very successful, wonderful producer, Rick Rubin, who, <laughs> who just out of the blue was like, you guys think you're done, you're not done. And that was that was great because that was a real healing record for us. And then we then stepped into uh, off the back of that feeling great and making snow. And again, it was two record cycles. And I felt like by the horns and the memory machine for us, Sorry, it's all a bit of a jumbly way of saying this, but we both write a lot of songs and putting out a record together, it always felt like it was six songs of his, six songs of mine, or six songs that I love or six songs that he loves, and we would put them together. That's not a lot for a two-year album touring cycle. So Mm. side projects had to exist for us to get the other music out. And The Memory Machine and By the Horns felt like songs that could have worked on an Angus and Julia record, but there wasn't space for them. Yes. This record's different because this wouldn't work in that context. It's something that felt really individual to me and something that sonically and lyrically I really, it's been bubbling underneath the surface, this style of singing and this style of expressing that I just, I've wanted to do for so long. And a big part of it was finding that confidence to do it. And working with Annie Clark, working with Thomas Bartlett, working with all of the collaborators on this record, really, it gave me that confidence. And I just felt like, yeah, this is this is where I want to go artistically. And oh, my gosh. Yeah. So. My favourite, favourite thing in doing these interviews is watching when the guests' eyes start to sparkle, when they get to the <laughs> bit where they're talking about the thing that makes them really excited. And you just started sparkling, like <laughs> talking about it. And you know, I, this was recorded between 2015 and now, and mm-hmm. that is that is a long time for something to be brewing for you. Which means that I can imagine how much of you has gone into finding this new sound and and working with new collaborators, having mm. written with the same person over and over. And I think there's five that have been released already but 14 songs now that are all yours Mm. with amazing amazing video clips I just watched before you arrived the one with Susan Sarandon and Danny Glover (laughs) so random but amazing yeah what does it feel like what does it are you petrified that it's out in the open are you proud and also from a a technical perspective for the totally uninitiated and non-musical listeners out there how do you write a song do you hear the lyrics first do you hear I know you play different instruments so do you hear it on a particular instrument like the vision when you actually break down every part of a song from its words to its backing to its you know harmonies to the melody like how does that all come into your brain do you wake up one day and you just hear it or how does it happen well, I'll, I'll answer that question, then I'll go back to how it feels to put the music out. Um, writing a song, I think every time is really different. And traditionally for me, writing was always on the piano or with an acoustic guitar. And it's different for everybody, but for me, it all came at once. It was something where I would start playing chords and then I would, I guess, almost at the same time, hear the lyrics and the melody and I would sing it. And what I would often do is record whilst I'm writing Mm. and sometimes it's really formed straight away and other times um, like a song like Death Defying Acts I remember writing almost just in one 
wow. go through, and you know, in 20 minutes sort of thing. And other times it'll be like I'll be, you know, jumbling around with different lyrics and different ideas and singing melodies and singing lyrics and and then I'll listen back and then I hear, oh, that's what the song's about. That moment wow. there is what I want to sing about and then I refine that idea and develop it from there. And that's been a really... A solo experience that way of writing then when I started writing with Angus Angus and I write very differently to that where we will something like Chateau for instance we'll start with a baseline we'll be in the studio often it'll just be the two of us he he will play a baseline I'll play a guitar part over the top then we layer that in in Pro Tools and just layer parts and start to create a vibe and then we will you know we'll send that to our friend who plays drums and <laughs> feel like do something with yeah, this. Yeah, <laughs> like give us a four to the floor kick feel, you wow. know, and send it back. And then we'll have a kick and bass part that's pretty basic. And then we sit opposite each other and we ha- both have a microphone and we just loop it for, you know, 30 minutes and we make up funny stuff. And <laughs> it sometimes just comes out. Yeah, we just, he'll say something and it makes me think of something and we go back and forwards. And a lot of that record, Snow, was written like that because you can hear it in songs like Snow where that stuff was from just the writing session where it's, um, I mean, I can't remember right now how the song goes, but um, (laughs) that back and forward style singing where Angus says something, then I say something, then he says something. And and then Chateau was, you know, he, he, we found in the lyrics somewhere this, I think he had said something like about the chateau and we were like, that's really cool. Like the, you know, the memory of being at the chateau, Mamon. I'd said something about dancing in the hotel room and it felt like, oh, there's the story. And yeah. then, you know, we build around it. But working on this record again was different. Uh, Thomas Bartlett, who was a co-writer for a lot of it, I'd go into the studio. He's got a studio in Midtown in New York and he would play me really interesting like break was um he'd play me those kind of the sax lines and the the looped beats and and he he'd play it and he'd just set up a microphone and say go and I'd just sing and say stuff and so I left and I started dancing under the streetlight and you saw me and I saw that you saw me and I went and you know I just I guess I love I like spoken word I like freestyle um writing but I'm too I'm not the person who's gonna go and do that live (laughs) all the time (laughs) all the time but I really enjoyed in the studio and there's only certain people I feel comfortable doing that with in front like in front of them which is Angus and then Thomas and Annie I felt really comfortable to just just write and just make stuff up and a lot of the time that's where the songs would form just having someone else create the sound and then I'd create the lyrics and melody. So, yeah. So cool. Because <laughs> I always have wondered, like, where does it just come into your brain, like a vision? And and do you ever, like, I think with business people, we look back at earlier iterations of what we do and cringe. And I think if you don't cringe over your earlier work, you haven't done it right because you haven't evolved enough. Do you cringe at your earlier music ever? Or do you love every single part of it for, for what it was at the time? I mean... I there was a time where I couldn't listen to anything ever you know if something would come on in a shop I would walk out of the shop because I was so uh, self-depreciating about the recording or the way I had sung and I think my voice has developed a lot there's a lot more strength in how I sing when I started I was very very delicate in my delivery and 
that was just because that's how I sang. I didn't have a strong voice and years and years of singing changes your voice. And now I I listen, if, if a song comes on like one of the early songs like Private Lawns or Mango Tree or I find it really sweet, you know, and I, I feel a sense of like pride around the child that I was when I made that. And I mm. have this real, I can hear the lost voice and I can hear the insecurity and I I can I mean I just have this feeling of like what an amazing confidence then to still it's so scary to put yourself out in the world and totally. I think that's big credit to our parents we were really lucky that we didn't question that there were people so much more talented than us on the open mic night scene that didn't have that confidence or that support and Angus and I talked about it a lot how you know we were we we had a lot of self-belief and there's an innocence in that there's this naivety of <laughs> you know people I'm sure a lot of people didn't want to play our music it was very it wasn't what was happening in Australian music at the time and but we just kept going and we just felt like you know there was something good in it and um and yeah. there absolutely was thank goodness <laughs> but how does that yeah how does that self-doubt play out for you now releasing this huge huge album that's been so long in the works that's so different again and I think being at the cutting edge of some something and doing something different to what you've ever done is the scariest thing you can ever do so how are you feeling now knowing there's still half an album to be released are you excited is there anything you're burning to let everyone hear yeah, I'm excited. I, I feel like the self-doubt part, I mean, you know, when people don't like what you do in any context, I think if people don't like something you say at a party or, you know, you're impacted or at least I am because that's something I I guess is part of my built identity is I like being liked. I like making people feel comfortable around me. I, I enjoy that feeling and so, you know, music, I guess, is an added expression of that. So if someone really specifically doesn't like it, then it's not <laughs> going to make me feel good. But I don't care as much as I used to. I just, I do what I do. And if it's not for you, it's not for you. And I feel really excited because it is a body of work that I'm really proud of. And I had a lot of fun making. And I can hear that in the record. It's really varied. And there's, every song has its own I mean, every song has something um, really heartfelt behind it and it's been built like, you know, brick by brick. I feel like I've built this house with these people I love in such a detailed way that I'm so excited for people to come over for a cup of tea. And (laughs) some people will notice that, you know, the architraves are really unique and special and every window is, you know, different and has been selected from markets around the world. And other people will just enjoy the cup of tea and not notice that. But for me, it's just knowing that I've built it with so much love and care. I know that and that feels good and that's exciting. And I don't know, I think humans are pretty intuitively smart. I think other people can feel that when you've put love and care into something, it it comes across on some subconscious level. So I I hope some people get to feel that because, yeah. 
The, yeah, the record's really interesting and different. It's so different. I love it <laughs> so much. It is so varied and I think that's such a testament to you as an artist as well that you can create such a, a broad range of music and continue to kind of surprise with new styles and new new ways of using your voice and, yeah, it's it's extraordinary. So congratulations. I'm so excited for Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that's very nice of you. <laughs> Just to finish up, this is something I... I'm quite fascinated about generally, but particularly in the case of artists. This this section is your play TA, which is who you are when you're stripped back from all the titles and all the product, you know, productive endeavors that you have in your life. So for people who are employed or people who are business people, the line is a little bit clearer because it's sort of on off. But in music or creativity, you're often drawing your inspiration for like the process of writing over years and years that on-off line is very blurry, I can imagine, and very hard to, I mean, you must enjoy music of others as well as writing Mm. it yourself. Mm. So in any job, but particularly when you love your job the most, you still need to find joy that's unrelated to it Mm. so that your brain can have a rest, so that you get inspiration. How do you play? What are the things that you do that are purely for joy and that maybe aren't related to music so that you do give yourself space to come back fresh when you're mm-hmm. writing again. Or maybe you don't need that. Maybe it is still music and that's all tied up together as work and play. How does it all work for you? I think both are true. I think there are times that music is completely tied up in my play, whether it's going out dancing and having that sort of experience of endorphin release through um, moving the body to rhythm and but I've realized over the years of being so immersed in music and being so completely you know there is no weekend it's just I'm thinking about it all the time and whether it's the collaboration of the music video and the what goes into making that and I mean all of it's fun for me I I Mm. feel like again, so lucky that this is my life and, but I don't turn off easily. And <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> so I've had to develop ways to turn off and it sounds maybe a little extreme, but what I have found works for me being the way that I am and being quite an extreme person and living an extreme life of probably at least 10 months touring up until the pandemic. But when I had those couple of months where I wasn't touring or recording or writing, I take myself to Vipassana. Or... <gasps> wow. Guys, that's a 10-day silent <laughs> retreat, completely silent, like no talking to other human beings. Incredible. Yeah. The introspection that must happen. I mean, it's very uncomfortable for the first few days. It's, a, it's an extreme uh, shock to the system in the same way I, I imagine if you're a heavy drinker, Mm. stopping drinking all of the sudden completely or stopping anything all of the sudden, stopping interaction with other humans when it's the predominant part of your life. The first few days is having that, the fear around what I'm going to see and what I'm going to confront and what I'm going to face. But I find it extremely healing and with a good teacher as well. I've done all kinds of Vipassanas with the um, Goenkaji system that's all over the world and then um, insight meditation which is another style of Vipassana and had extraordinary teachers and feel so lucky to have sat with them because the kind of wisdom that is uh, given to us as students is you know I, I think 
I've always been doing this in a way from when I started backpacking. I, I <laughs> was seeking out this other side of what what could be considered peace or joy or connection and music has been a big part of that but it's also a job. So mm. meditation and the, the spiritual community I think is really helpful for me and yeah for passion it's not for everybody um but I love it I am I'm weirdly in love with the process and probably the thing I miss most about the pandemic has not been able to go on retreat wow do you do one every year yes (gasps) I mean you know for the past six years yeah wow oh my gosh well that could be one of your answers to the second last question (laughs) what are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in interviews the things that only someone who lived with you would know like weird snoring habits or Mm. (laughs) funny party tricks or I'm very into having baths oh me too my husband thinks it's like bathing in your own filth but I think it's the most (laughs) relaxing thing you could ever do I'm like I'm clean how dirty do you think I am yeah and I have (laughs) a very I'm a very cold like I run really cold so baths are like I just find them so comforting and I love switch so I play switch in the bath what's switch like a Nintendo <gasps> Nintendo Switch. <laughs> I was like, surely not that Switch. Yeah, so that's people amazing. don't know that I love gaming. Probably, um, I guess that's three things. Fast. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> I have one last one. What is your favorite song that isn't one of your own, mm. or a favorite song? I'm sure you have many. I mean, a, a couple that are on varying degrees of the spectrum is, you know, we grew up with. Americana music like Neil Young, Joni Mitchell and all of those, that crew. And I was obsessed with Neil Young's Comes a Time record and I love most of the tracks on that record like a lot and Come, Comes a Time <laughs> is is a song that I really, any time I hear it, I think it's a phenomenal piece of songwriting. But then I also love Kylie's Real Groove. You know, that's like, <laughs> yeah. at the moment, I just think that's a brilliant pop song. And every time I hear it, I'm so happy. Is I there love, a um, musician you would love to collaborate with? I mean, Kylie, I love her. <gasps> that I just, would be the best. <laughs> it would be really fun. And I think she's so badass and, you know, just, yeah. She's, she's awesome. You know, people that have passed on like Leonard Cohen and David Bowie, of course, oh, Leonard Cohen. if you could choose anyone throughout history. so We can hologram them back to you for Coachella and you guys can do it. Yeah, that's it. right. <laughs> and final question, what's your favourite quote? Oh, favourite quote. Um, I don't know who said this uh, except for my friend <laughs> who said it to me once when I was um, extremely heartbroken. I had I had gone into a space that wasn't great after losing someone that I really I felt a strong bond with and I guess the loss of friendship was a big deal and they some I was I was actually on another retreat in India and my friend was sitting with me and we were we were throwing stones in the river we're playing this game where you chuck one stone up and then you have to try and hit it (laughs) (laughs) It's a really calming game if you ever need something to take your mind off things. 
And um, oh, another thing I was going to say, sorry, this goes back to before you said, what else do I do aside from Vipassana? I also love sports. So I stop. I play squash and tennis and that's a, another thing that I do to take my mind off. I love that. Music. Um, my dad always said, well, if she didn't get into music, she would have been on the Aussie uh, soccer team. I loved. <laughs> Never too late. <laughs> that's right. We I could have a is. Matilda right there. <laughs> um, yeah. So you can do everything, kids. Um, I was sitting playing this game and I, I was really concentrating and I was talking. I was trying to unravel what had happened and and he just said to me, what is for you won't go by you. I love that one. Yeah, I found it really helpful and I, I just thought that's so true. I mean, why are we so afraid? If, if it's meant for us, it will find us. And it made so much sense to me because, of course, throughout life, there are friendships, there are loves that come and then go forever and there are some that will return at a different point in your life and you don't have to be afraid it's mm. if it's meant to be it'll it'll find you again oh my gosh that's beautiful and such a perfect way to end thank you so much for joining this was amazing and I'm so excited about 60 summers thank you so nice talking <laughs> with you thank you so much I truly love metaphorically climbing into the brains of people like Julia, whose minds just operate so differently to my own. I can't imagine just hearing a brand new song out of nowhere in my ears. Did anyone else find it fascinating to hear how she writes songs? Like how incredible is it that music just comes from nothing into something in the mind of an artist like hers and then that people can even collaborate to create something from nothing together. If you enjoyed, as always, please let Julia know by sharing and tagging her it means so much for our guests to hear feedback and to help us continue to scout new amazing humans to share their stories 60 summers is a beautiful sensory experience such a cool album make sure to tune in as soon as the remaining tracks launch in the coming days the album comes out officially on april 30th and in the meantime hope you have an amazing week and a seizing your yay